Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. At the top of every month, I choose a filmmaker or genre of which I am woefully oblivious and discuss the significance and impact with a guest who will then recommend me three titles most relevant to the topic, which I will then watch and report back on. This month, I'll be exploring some films of Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiarostami, and joining me to discuss is, well, he's a New York-based filmmaker and DP and pho- photographer and all-around good guy, Benny Crown. Benny, thank you for joining me. I'm glad to be here. I'm also glad of the way this is introduced because I also feel woefully ignorant on a lot of <laughs> movies, and it's uh, helpful to just be along someone else that mm-hmm. way. And I am by no means an expert on Kiarostami. Well, and have just been discovering his films. Well, most people aren't not well, I don't want to say most people aren't experts, but at least they're enthusiasts, and that's what yes, I look for. I would claim that. I'm recently uh, on board and really ready to dive into a lot more Kiarostami films than the ones I've seen. Yeah. Now, I this this uh, theme and episode came about because I was at the IFC Center in New York City. I was, I, th- I think, I was waiting for the Sword of Truth to uh, begin, the latest Lynn Shelton film, which, as of this recording, is on my top ten. But I feel like that may change. Uh, you, you're looking at me very confused right now. Because does that have anything to do with a fa- the fantasy series? No, it's, no, no, no. Okay, never mind. Terry Goodkind. <laughs> um, but uh, Mark, it, it stars Mark Maron. It's basically they. Um, oh. uh, someone has a, an old. Um, uh, 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 two women inherit uh, like a, a sword from the Civil War that allegedly the proof of its authenticity proves that this, the South actually won the Civil War. So they go to to give it to this pawn shop uh, owner played by Mark Maron, and it, it, it's you know it's it's a sort of truth. It's a delight. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a wonderful film which kind of talks about you know like fake news and believing like you know yeah. alternate history and, and and what is real and authenticity and that kind of stuff but it, it could easily get knocked out of my top 10 because i liked it a lot but also there's other things that i'm much more excited to see mm. this year anyway i digress uh but i was waiting for it to begin and ifc was having kind of a retrospective on kiarostami and i think specifically they were advertising the coker trilogy and when I was, and I, I recognized the name Kiristami, and as soon as I was done, I texted Benny, I'm like, Benny, do you know Kiristami? And his text was, I think in all caps, is like, I love Kiristami. So I think, well, this is someone I should probably get to, get to know. So, um, but also full disclosure of two things before we kind of get into this actual episode. One, we're not talking about the Coker trilogy, yeah. um, and which was the, initially the idea was I was like, Benny, why don't we just do all three movies of the Coker trilogy? Uh, and then I said, that'd be perfect. It came out today on the Criterion Collection. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Benny never got around to watching it. Because it's only been a week, Jim. They did, The listeners didn't have to know that. <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to blame you. I was just kind of explaining that, you know, if you're expecting, especially because uh, when I hinted at this episode on the Facebook page, I, I posted something from the Coker trilogy, still from it. Gotcha. So I feel like everyone now is expecting me to talk about that. So I'm sorry if you're expecting us to talk about the Coker trilogy or for me to review any films from the Coker trilogy, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. If you turn off the episode, I fully understand. 
<laughs> but uh, so there's that. But then number two, and this is something Benny and I talked about off mic, was this idea of uh, we're talking about an Iranian filmmaker, uh, a non-Caucasian filmmaker from uh, the Middle East, and we're two white guys. And that's not to undercut what we're talking about as much as just this was something we grappled with, too, of, the, of this idea of who are the gatekeepers of this kind of stuff. When it, it developed this whole conversation of privilege and, and that sort of thing, but also, um, it, you know, it just kind of sometimes I do lament the fact of like, you know, I, I, I wish that this podcast was more popular, that I had more connections so I could have people from different like ethnic backgrounds and cultures and that stuff kind of uh, hinted that, which is not to disparage Benny at all, but um, it, it, there is going to be a, a limitation to the things that we can speak to and, and, and uh, I guess not necessarily empathize with, but things that we can add context to. So just keep that in mind, but uh, hopefully it's going to be a good time, because Benny and I are good people, for the most part. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, and all of you have probably turned this episode off, for the three people who are still listening and want to know more about Benny. So Benny, before we <laughs> even get into uh, Kiristami, let's just talk about movies in general. What was it? What was it that got you into movies? What was the thing, whether it was the movie or an experience, that just like, you know, because you don't get into cinephilia unless there's like something which hits you that just a book couldn't or a painting couldn't or theater couldn't or something what, what was the movie thing for you that kind of got you on this track well i definitely like all children of the 90s born in the 80s just a lot of great films uh and i enjoyed films with my family and watching but i remember a distinct moment when my parents had on the tv some sort of film. It looked old. And it was in color. But I I was like, what, what is this? Something caught me about it. I don't know what. And my parents said, very en- enigmatically, just, just watch for a bit. Just, <laughs> just sit down and see what it's like. And <clears throat> I got really drawn into it. And that was Donald M. for Murder by Hitchcock. Uh. And really for me, I think it was... This is a different level of movie than I think I've experienced in just theater and just for entertainment. There was something operated at a higher level and it worked on on me in a certain way that when I was done I was like, wow, that was much more of an experience than I expected. Mm-hmm. And especially from an older film. And I think subsequently I really dove into Hitchcock. The second kind of tier of my movie level involvement and interest came really when I took a personal turn towards film in terms of a career choice. Mm -hmm. I was watching Star Wars behind the scenes, because we were big fans of Star Wars, Mm -hmm. our family, and I remember watching about the sound Foley artists, (laughs) and I was like, wait, wait, hold on a second, you get paid to mess around with electric shavers and pots and pans and make noise, these, you know, play around. Mm -hmm for a movie and you're a real person uh i was like hmm i think there's something to this you know people get paid for this (laughs) could i do that maybe i could and so i think that was the next level for me and and my parents were paid really close attention to my interests and not long after that i had a camera to play around with because my friend and i had started making Stop animation videos of our oh. Star Wars figurines. Oh, really? Yeah. So <laughs> that kicked off the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That was Star Wars was a uh, was the thing for for me as well. That kind of got me into. Uh, I remember not just falling in love with it, but also uh, 
do you come from an evangelical background like I do? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so for me, my family was the type that we we did church twice on Sundays. We did the morning service and we had to do the night yeah. service. And we there was like we had no choice in the matter, especially as kids. <laughs> so even though the night service was like sparsely populated and like it was just a bunch of old people and then my parents and like me and my younger brother or my older brother, uh, we had no choice. But I remember. Uh, I, I guess how Star Wars is tied to significance of my develop uh, my my childhood development. I guess there was one day that I think it was the USA Network was playing. They said Star Wars, but a uh, uh, one third free or something. But they were basically just playing Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, <laughs> uh, which as a kid I was fine with because the first one was my least favorite one, A New Hope. And I remember it was like four o'clock on like a Sunday afternoon, and I was watching it. And my mom's like, "What are you watching?" I'm like. I'm watching Star Wars. They're playing Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And she's like, well, I guess I know where you'll be for the rest of the day. And I got out of going to church so I could watch Star Wars. And that was like such a huge deal for me. Where it's like it's a miracle. It was it was it was amazing, and it was so and it was and I mean that never happened again. <laughs> but it was just cool that it was sort of like I, I got to skip out of this um, obligation that I didn't really want to, so that I could indulge in this thing that I loved. You must have you must have really displayed an interest for your your mom to really observe that and and kind of bend the rules and say like. I think this would be good for my son, actually, to Maybe, stay home yeah. this, this Sunday. That's a big... I don't know. Well, I think she couldn't have been ignorant either to the idea that, like, her kid didn't enjoy going, <laughs> going to the, these evening services. No, where, they were so entertaining. And, and, there were, and especially during summer, there was always this one older woman who would complain to the pastor because I would wear shorts, and she hated that. So she'd <laughs> complain to the pastor, like, this boy is wearing shorts, and it's inappropriate. And then out of obligation, the pastor would have to talk to my dad and just like, well, listen, she said something, and my dad's like, I, I don't care. But, you know, but it, it was... It, so it's all it's all kind of uh, tied together there. And but. your mother was like, he is wearing pants. He just grows really quickly. <laughs> I did. I, I was I was a tall kid pretty early in my life, and now I've I've remained such. The world has yet to catch up with me, unfortunately. But um, okay, so now you do you do a lot of different kind of like filming for your work. You do, I'm sure, creative stuff, corporate stuff as well. You know, whatever it takes to pay the bills. So I talked about this a little bit with uh, uh, Sean Meehan when I relaunched the podcast. And we talked about Gamble Del Toro. He's a DP as well, um, and it, so it's this idea of. So you see Hitchcock, or you see films, and like, oh my god, I'm so inspired by this filmmaker or this DP. But then day in, day out, a lot of stuff you're doing is just kind of like, hey, point the camera and shoot that. How do you personally kind of work like, you have your creative inspirations, you have your things you want to aspire to, and how do you reconcile that with just like, a job that might not be, hey, I'm making the kind of films I want to make day in and day out kind of a thing? Well, I think... You know, I wonder about the origin of this attitude for me, but something early on kind of keyed me into um, the fact that, <clears throat> you know, if I was given just like a, the biggest budget early on and all the time in the world just to try and make the films that I wanted to make, it wouldn't really come. Like, uh, it wouldn't really happen as magically as you might think it would. Mm -hmm. And that there is... Something, and I think I've I've learned this subsequently, just from my experience. Actually, I would say of late, my inspiration for what I want to do. I've I've known for a long time, I guess, that I wanted to direct films. Mm -hmm. I I did like look up to Hitchcock, and I felt that film for me was a a a, a venue for many of my varied interests. And 
that I could combine them all in this one effort, you know, music and writing and visual and, you know, building and all sorts of things, and people, you know? And um, I think um, there's something in realizing that uh, I think I talked to an AFI representative in undergrad, and okay. he was like, you know, people don't really go to grad school right away. You know, they go out and they work for a while. Mm-hmm. And the idea of just kind of applying yourself to work um, sort of made sense. I, th- I think there was something in it that just, you know, I think coming from the Midwest, you know, we were taught good work ethic and just like put your nose to the grind and just work and, and things will be, um, you'll learn. And... I think also, subsequently, just like listening to certain directors, like even, not to already get into Kiarostami, but a lot of directors that I admire, they talked about their early careers being really shaped within like very industry, benign type productions, and that um, that really um, kind of inspired them later. I myself had a very certain experience where I was working with uh, a musical group and it was it was sort of a grind and um, it was a lot of fun creative work but I was definitely um, coming out of that experience just a little bit cynical honestly yeah. of the industry mm-hmm. and how image making happens and the, the behind the scenes peer behind the curtain you know and but that has really led me to kind of what um, is really inspiring me to make media mm-hmm. these days. And I think that part of that has to come from the grind. Essentially, this this idea that I think is a little bit more Eastern than it is Western, this idea that there's wisdom in doing the same thing over and over and over again, a very simple thing that there's much, there's deep wisdom to learn in that kind mm-hmm. of, versus kind of these just one-off epiphanies here and there, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like it's, I mean, there's something to be learned in every experience that, or every kind of job you have. Like, oh, I, I, I know more about this thing now because I did it versus that. Even if I, I was once given, where was I? Oh, I, I was once helping out with a, a, a production where we were shooting on a, a college campus and like our, some of our helpers were film students, like freshman film students that hadn't yet even begun their film school education. And uh, after we had packed up and, and, and we were getting ready to, to leave, I kind of felt like I should impart some type of wisdom or advice, which was hilarious in retrospect, because, like, who am I to give advice to anyone? <laughs> but I, I basically kind of... The thing I ended up telling them was, like, every job or everything you do is going to be a learning experience, even if the only thing you learn is, well, that's not something I want to do or pursue in the future. It's like, that's still a valuable experience, basically. And I had a I had a really um when I was in college I got the chance to work on a short film set and uh, my college my undergraduate degree was um, it was a telecommunications degree I went to Ball State University in Indiana mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a film degree it was more the history of the program was broadcast based but there was a contingent of us who were interested in film mm-hmm. and we were had some opportunities and I was on this this short film and. Um, I was second AC, and um, it was in Ohio, and we, we stayed at a friend's house who was from Ohio, and I just remember getting done with the whole production at the end, and just all of us were kind of like, you know, we were underlings, sort of, mm-hmm. really trying to learn, and we'd get to the end, and we'd be like, oh, man, that director's 
horrible or this was horrible or this is the worst is this how it is and it was really in talking about it you know we were just like really complaining about a lot of things but we all realized like this is actually really good to point out like and that really sunk in for me kind of the lesson of like all experiences are good experiences and learning experiences especially the negative ones yeah um if you go to a set and everything runs perfectly you don't really have you might that might be one vision of how uh, one way that it might work, but that's very limited to that one exact way versus like if you are on a set where everything goes wrong and you're able to observe how seasoned people problem solve those yeah. things mm-hmm. or even fail to yeah. from a person who's not in charge, you're kind of getting this great observation into like, uh, you know, a chance for yourself to kind of think through, like, oh, what would be better? Or, mm-hmm. I'm the butt of this problem, like, I'm really, <laughs> you know, and what would be better? How You know, how would I feel better? For me, most of the time, it was like, as long as you've fed me well, I didn't have any problem. <laughs> so that's my number one, you know, thing with any production that I'm on, is like, you know, you can do everything to put your crew through hell, but as, as long as you feed them well. Well, it, feed them all; they'll be happy. It's funny you say that because I remember years ago reading a um, Eli Roth had written a thing of like, uh, in order to have a, a smoothly running film set, here's like ten things you should keep in mind, and one of them was like, have food options for all types of people, like you know, so that everyone is happy and all times of day. Yeah, exactly, man. Which is like something you don't think about until like, yeah, I guess that because I mean, if you have nothing but you know X or Y, and then someone's like, hey, I'm a, I'm a vegan, it's like, oh, sorry, we're just, we got nothing for you. Um, which was, I, I thought, quite wise coming from the guy who'd ultimately do, you know, The Green Inferno, but, or, or, <laughs> or, or, or the, the remake of, uh, Death Wish, but, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. So, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, because you do not just filmmaking, but you do photography as well. And tying into this, uh, I mean, the conversation about Kiristami, he has done both as well. And so for you personally, I guess, what do you... Not even see the differences, because obviously the difference is one is moving pictures and one is still images. But in regards to what you get out of one but not the other or that kind of thing, like how do you kind of see the differences of the stories that you can kind of tell with image, like, you know, film versus photography or vice versa, basically? This has been an interesting intersection for me to figure out, honestly. And, um, you know, it's a constantly evolving answer, I would say. Um I've always, there are a lot of uh, filmmakers of our generation who um, started out filmmakers and that they've gotten into photography, or mm-hmm. a lot of photographers have gotten into video, and that's because of the readily available technology. Yeah. You know, um, I really grew up, and one of my first more legitimate cameras was a digital SLR that also took video. Yeah. And I've had. Again, coming from the attitude of all experiences are learning experiences, I um, I had opportunities early on to apprentice with a photographer mm-hmm. while I was doing interested in video. But even before that, my, my parents had also nurtured that kind of interest. And in retrospective, I'm, I'm finding out that my grand, grandfathers were both very interested in cameras and they had oh. their own film things, and I'm starting to see maybe there was some sort of influence that they had on me. Mm. Um, But I think... um, So I've been doing both in a professional sense, actually, for a while. Mm -hmm. And for me, one informs the other. Photography was a great vehicle for me to understand the mechanics of a camera Mm. 
as applied to video and mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a more elemental understanding of it. And in terms of composition as well, you know, understanding film first as static shots, but then introducing the added element of movement. Mm-hmm. That said, I am coming to really sort of wonder how much of a difference um, still photography and motion photography is. Um, or maybe not how different, but I, I really don't view them as very different things. To me, it's this one venture in my head. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, kind of a lot of, um, I think what I want to do in, in film, I, I wrote a script last year and I'm planning to f- film it as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really about the intersection of photography and, and film. It's a short film, mm-hmm. um, but I plan to shoot it um, using only still images. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I kind of witnessed uh, in Chris Marker's film, La Jate. Yep. And I was, I was blown away when I saw that in film class in college. I, it, it's black and white. It's, it's just under half an hour long. Mm-hmm. And it was just still images, and yet it was so... Poignant. I mean, it was so powerful. It's a sci-fi film of all times, of all types of film, and really, there's not a lot of sci-fi imagery. Like, if it does very little to suggest some sort of other world, and yet you have this profound sense of something otherworldly going on. Yeah, because how how the images work in conjunction with the voiceover narration that you hear. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So definitely that this whole path has taken me on a journey of, of what is image and what is, uh, when you combine it, I mean, I have a Roland Barthes book right there, image, music, text. Oh yeah. And another book that has really inspired me is Roland Barthes, uh, camera Lucida. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm really contemplating what kind of the image is and, um, it's uh, something I'm continuing to explore. <laughs> it's it's hard. I I don't know. It, it That's is inter- sort of my answer. It, it is interesting because I I I know very little about photography. Um, couldn't you know aside from like you know Annie Leibovitz, I couldn't really name you famous photographers or that kind of stuff. Uh, and yet, but but I know that when we talk about movies, you can talk about like well, there's a language of cinema, um, and so it's it's interesting to hear you say like that you don't you don't know or you don't necessarily see what a big difference is because I'm even wondering like if you told Scorsese to tell a story without Thelma Schoomaker's editing and just still images like would he be able to or um, well I was about to say Spielberg without Kaminsky but I mean Kaminsky is you know the DPs and he and you know Spielberg has worked with other people who are not Kaminsky but yeah it, it is it is interesting because I I I remember seeing La Jete in in film school because I think it was a I had a class that was, um, I think it was just European cinema. So we did, yeah. we did the French New Wave, New German cinema, and the Italian Neorealism all in one semester, That's which was a like lot. It, it is because you could do a, a semester on each one of those movements, and we kind of crammed them all into one. Um, and French New Wave was we uh, we did. I mean, spent most of the time, and obviously like Truffaut and Godard, and then like kind of the the West Bank filmmakers are kind of crammed into like the last few days. So like we touched upon Chris Marker, or we touched upon. Um, Agnes Varda, or we touched upon, I can't remember anyone else, but, but the only thing we did see from Chris Marker was La Jete. Mm. And it is interesting because oftentimes when you think about a movie, you do just think of like an, an indelible image. And he's telling the story, which is just like, all you can think about because all you have is images. Mm. And 
I mean, spoiler alerts for a short film that came out in the 1960s, but then you have that last, the very last <laughs> shot where there's actually movement to it, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's almost kind of like, um, this is a poor comparison, but at the end of uh, The Artist, when um, when uh, uh, Michel Hanavicius like, finally speaks... And it's like, oh, okay, I, I get now why the whole, but it's, I, I, what is it Michael Hanavicius? Was he the director of this? It doesn't matter, but you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Um, so that is, I, I, there's no question or statement in there as much as I'm, I'm just spewing um, yes. at this point. But um, yeah, and so I guess let's, um, so let's not get specifically into Kiarostami, but Benny's first exposure to Kiarostami. So what was it that you were kind of like either blown away by that or even because or or even maybe the situation of like you saw something like that was cool and then like in retrospect you look back like oh that was kiristami oh that was a really cool thing because I, I know for me aside from star wars probably the, the other most significant filmic experience where i was kind of like drawn into something whether i was like trying to pull away or not was uh george romero's night of living dead mm-hmm. and specifically the sequence near the end when they're trying to fill up the truck with gas um, the you know the they the gas goes all over the place the car and it gets lit up and and it's it's for a while it's just like Dwayne Jones kind of by himself surrounded by zombies and just that image of this dude surrounded by these undead I was just like I don't know what this is but I'm in I am intrigued by it and then growing up years later and then recognize like oh that was Night of the Living Dead okay cool um, it's fun how that works but wh- I mean which one wh- which one was it for you well. Full disclosure, I mean, a lot of my, I've had ambitions to maybe go to grad school and maybe realize that that's not really the path I want to take. Simultaneously, I've been reading a lot on my own and the Criterion Collection has been a great avenue for me to discover Mm. new films. And I often browse the new titles that are coming out. I don't actually specifically remember, um, I think it was Certified Copy Mm -hmm. that somehow caught my eye because there's this sort of duplicity inherent in images and I think I was reading some Susan Sontag at the time and um, just everything about images was really fresh and certified copy kind of I think jumped out at me and I maybe I don't even know if there was a trailer but I read about it mm-hmm. and uh, I, yeah I really just discovered it on Criterion and I was like I'll give this a shot Every time they have the half-off flash sale. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just... It's hard to resist. I, I don't try to. <laughs> I go full-blown. I mean, I spend hundreds of dollars, but once every couple of years, and they're all half-off, so... Yeah. And that, for me, as a freelancer, it's a write-off. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> or at least I consider it a write-off. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I kind of just, you know, it caught my eye, the description on, on Criterion. I, I ordered it. I ordered two of them because uh, it just seemed something about it seemed to attract me. Okay. So, what? And I guess I could ask this. This may lead into the 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 more specific title discussion. But I mean, what what is it about his stuff that when you saw it, kind of like that drew you to it, or or or, or what kind of defines for you? Like, I I see that this is a Kiarostami film because of X, Y, or Z, basically. Well, that has been, I think the first film I watched was, um, in, in fact, yes, leading into, like, I'm, I'm kind of my suggested order for you in the three films are almost the first three films I watched of him. Hmm. 
um, and the order I watched. And I'm grateful for serendipitously how I watched them in the order because it kind of each progressive film working backwards in his catalog mm-hmm. kind of was a deeper dive into what really makes Kiarostami what he's known for. Mm-hmm. And um, I started with like someone in love and I just remember watching it and I really respected the film for, you know, not really catering to the audience that much. There was much that I ended up having to kind of fill in on my own. And even then kind of shifted my expectations for what I needed to know about what's going on in the film. Mm -hmm. And it really brought me to a more immediacy with what I'm watching. Mm -hmm. In the moment I'm watching and taking the moment for what it is, mm-hmm. not needing to know. It's it's very ant- antithetical to like something that Hitchcock would, you know. At the same time, you know, a film often is you know it's a duration, and we're expect there's expectations inherent no matter how much a, a filmmaker works to subvert those ex- expectations. Sure. You're always playing with expectations. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think watching his film, I was surprised at how much I just enjoyed the moment, even when there was suspense. I didn't want to necessarily race ahead to mm-hmm. the next moment. Yeah. Um, and just very nuanced in general. It's just very, I, I really enjoyed it. So if you, I mean, if you could kind of make a, a comparison to, um, not necessarily a comparison to him or, you know, so anything is going to be a false equivalency, I guess. But it's sort of like if you're telling someone like me or listeners like, well, if you like this filmmaker, Kiarostami is probably going to appeal to you as well. Or is it even because I know that he he himself is an influential uh, filmmaker, too. I mean, we were <laughs> before we started recording, we were looking at videos to try and make sure we got the, his his name pronunciation correct. <laughs> and uh, I mean, White I, boys. And, and Tiff. Um, the Toronto International Film Festival kind of had a, a honored him, and, and one of the people t- presenting with, and, and honoring him was Martin Scorsese. I mean, this is he's an influential filmmaker himself, even if you're not going to go to an AMC and, and see a Kiarostami film. So even even like if it's a uh, you know um, oh you like Kiarostami films, so you'll also like this person, or if you like this person, you'll like Kiarostami as well. Um, I would say um, that for me. It's my interests seem to be very varied, and like often when I'm talking to you, even (laughs) there are some films it's like, oh yeah, I really didn't like that, and some films, you know, just like there's a lot of synchronicity between us, but also sometimes where I'm like, oh, you hated it, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I think that um, Michael Haneke is one uh, Mm -hmm. filmmaker who I know respected Kiarostami and I think that they share um, they share some themes in terms of uh, talking about what film is Mm -hmm. and being self-reflective as filmmakers Mm. Um, I also think that there's something and maybe I'm just drawing this conclusion from the fact that the first Kiarostami film I watched was filmed in Tokyo, mm-hmm. and um, even though he's an Iranian director, there's not really any sort of Iranian characters mm-hmm. in it. It's it's all Japanese, and um, I think when I think of Kiarostami, there's something about 
that resonates uh, with Ozu, Yasujiro Ozu. Ah. In terms of, there's a subtlety to the way he depicts his characters in, and creates a real reality that they live in. Mm-hmm. It is not the abbreviated Hollywood summary of the you know the highlights of someone's characteristics. <laughs> it is many subtle, nuanced, uh, idiosyncratic moments. And I think that's something that, um, you know, I think Ozu is really careful to craft and facilitate real life happening in front of the camera. And I think Yarostami also does that. Ozu is a filmmaker that I've dabbled with. Like, I should probably cover him on this podcast as well. But then the challenge being like, oh, well, first I need to find someone who can talk about Ozu and, and then we can cover it. But... Um, I, I, I wanted to, and you've already kind of hinted at which film you're going to talk about first, but even before we kind of get into that and kind of solidify the rest of the conversation, you mentioned something to me off mic before we kind of started talking about with uh, Kiarostami also being involved as a photographer and just talking about this idea of the the duplicity of images, basically, and kind of how he approaches that as a filmmaker. And it's interesting that you say that we talk about Chris Marker because Chris Marker was, you know, uh, a fan of Kiristami stuff as well and Lajate just being all still. So explain a little bit more about that duplicity of images thing. If nothing else, so that when I'm going into this completely blind, because I knew nothing about Kiristami, even when I asked you to be on the podcast to talk about him, just some type of thing that I can grab onto and watch this and kind of be like, okay, here's my anchor. Here's what I'm kind of viewing uh, all these films as, as a lens through. So... When I say duplicity of images, um, you know, what is an image? It's, it's, Roland Barthes lends a lot of language to this. It's a, you know, uh, it's a ghost. It's not the actual thing. It's an essence of the thing, and yet it's not the thing. It's something that we reference other objects with, yet it's not that thing that we're referencing. Um, you know, Mm. much like a, a word, you know, I, uh, the word for dinosaur does not constitute a physical dinosaur, <laughs> but it's something representative. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to kind of get that with words because it's very clearly these characters, these symbols, mm-hmm. uh, and they have no resemblance to the reality that they reference. Whereas images, they a- almost magically reproduce the very thing that it is referencing. Mm-hmm. And so there's some confusion, I think, that happens with an image, essentially. When you're looking at an image, your brain processes it as, I'm looking at a dinosaur, not I'm looking at ink on a page that's arranged in dots that somehow my vision blurs together those colors and mm-hmm. it's a dinosaur yeah. in a certain shape. So I think underpinning a lot of Kiarostami's work and in the in the style of, of Chris Marker as well, there, there, there's something about images uh, that deceive. But that's what we love about film, mm-hmm. right? You know, we love to kind of be immersed in a world that's very much like, I think, the appeal of Star Wars. We imagine ourselves out in space mm-hmm. and all these things, and it's wonderful, and that's what stories do. Um, and I think, really, Kiarostami and other filmmakers are kind of getting at this you know, kind of nodding, not just being meta about, we know that you know that we made this film. Mm-hmm. 
you know, even even going so far as like Hitchcock being in his own films, kind of being like, haha, took you out of it for a moment. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, this kind of goes a little farther in really getting to the sense of don't forget that this is not this is not real life, mm-hmm. and we're so bought into it that I think this is. A driving force of Kiarostami, I think a driving force of Michael Haneke, and, um, you know, being aware of what we're ingesting, essentially. Is is there an example you can give specifically from one of his films without necessarily spoiling the film? Of Kiarostami? Yeah, just in regards to, like, uh, <laughs> some some uh, sequence or an image which is sort of like that that idea of not being meta, but also kind of like using the tool of, like, cinema as, like, keep in mind, this is not an actual... This is not the thing. I am just representing the thing or person or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that the very end of... I think you really live in the world of, like, someone in love. Mm -hmm. I think you really live in Tokyo with the characters, and you are... In that world, you are a fly on the wall. I think you, when a character is, there's tension, you feel it. You, you're, a lot of the shots he has are, are in a car. Mm-hmm. You feel very much in the car with them. Um, at the end, there's a moment that really takes you out of it. Because you, it's, um, it, it really takes you out of it. I don't want to say anything more. Right. In certified copy, it's a little bit more evident. There's, um... It starts very subtly, and it really has to do with the perceptions. It's not really a moment. It never, there are moments in which you kind of sort of, but they're like they're like growing moments. You think that you're watching something, and then all of a sudden you start to get a sense like, wait a minute, and this is within the story. Am I watching what I thought I was watching? You know, in terms of the story, I thought it was this type of story, mm-hmm. but maybe it's this type of story, or maybe... I thought this character was in this type of role. Like, I thought they were married. Or I didn't think they were married, but mm-hmm. maybe they are married or have been in the past. That's very much certified copy. Okay. But then it really takes... Again, there's some... The last shot, the last couple shots, it is something that really makes you aware of the, the fact that the camera is in front of these actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, I think if you're, if you're, if you're listening kind of to the film and watching closely but again listening too uh, you really get a sense of like it, it slowly it, it puts you in that world and then it slowly takes you out of that world a little bit hmm. and you start to, to kind of deconstruct and it's it's very on the first time watch it's it's sort of confusing <laughs> you're like I'm, I'm sort of fo- you know I'm following these moments but then it keeps like shifting and I'm not sure if it follows from what happened earlier, or what, you know, it leads you down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Okay. And then last thing before, oh, you. And had then more? the last one, okay. Close up is is very much from the outset. Mm-hmm. You're it's very much in your face. This is fictional. It has to be fictional, and and it's based on truth. There's real life of real life events that the film is about, mm-hmm. and yet when you're watching it, you're like, wait. He these are reproductions of certain moments, mm-hmm. but it from the very start it's very unclear 
as to like what is nonfiction, what's fiction. Mm-hmm. Did they take liberties of from the very start? Mm-hmm. From the very start. Um, yeah. <laughs> So then, and last thing before we kind of get into the specific titles, which if you've been paying close attention, you can already tell which ones we're going to be talking about. But keeping in mind, we're two uh, American guys talking about this. But so I'm, I'm not even necessarily saying like, what is what do Kurosami's films tell us about Iranian culture specifically? But I know that there is this wonderful tendency in art where. The more specific an artist gets with the truths they're hitting on, the more kind of universal truth you find it in the sense of, like, there's something which connects humans all the time. But you can often kind of see, like, oh, I understand, I can relate to their situation, even though the context around it might necessarily be different. But when it comes to something like religious persecution or um, the role of gender in society, like, you know, the context may be different, but I understand the truth that they're hitting at. So... What do you see that kind of stuff in Kiristami films in the sense of like, um, once again, not like, let me explain Iranian culture to you, but within that context of this thing, here are the truths that you that a, a viewer can kind of connect with. Well, very much so. From what I understand of the Coker trilogy, which is sitting on my desk right here, unwatched still, I can see it. Um, that from you know, Coker is a town in Iran, mm-hmm. and um. I think it very much is that that Iranian culture, that picture of life in that town, and various levels of it. The three films comprising, comprising, as I understand it, different levels of kind of the scale. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting, Close Up was made in Iran, uh, but Certified Copy was in Italy, mm-hmm. and Like Someone in Love was made in Tokyo, mm-hmm. in Japan. And it really does, I think, get to like the fact that Kiarostami really, and he was kind of uh, moved his productions out of country due to tightening censors. Mm-hmm. Um, it speaks to that translatability of the essence of humanity. And, you know, he's not a Japanese man, no. but he made a film in Japan mm-hmm. within the, the story takes place in the Japanese culture. And yet, I'm not Japanese, so I can't speak on behalf of someone from Japan, Mm. but there is something that, as a human, I definitely resonate with, and, you know, I think he's very careful to get so specific into something cultural, and really keeps to the um, the essence of human relations within the context. It just so happens to be set in Tokyo, Mm -hmm. and... um, and, you know, he worked with the Japanese production mm-hmm. uh, crew and crew members who, you know, they were really uh, collaborative in helping bring to life the film. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's important when you go to a, a you know different culture to make a film. And um, so yeah, I think he his just his body of work, the way he was able to in his later years take his work outside of Iran mm-hmm. and it, and still make. Beautiful work. I mean, Italy and Japan, two very different places from Iran, and yet um, make beautiful films that resonate. Well, and it's important, too, to not humanize, but to, to make sure that we're reminding to empathize and connect. I mean, especially in in this day and age where it's like, obviously, um, not only are there issues of, of censorship in Iran and that kind of stuff, there are certainly kind of movements where it seems like they're 
culture is opening up a little bit more to Western influence and just not even Western, but just the world influence. But then also, of course, we currently live in a, in a, in a political climate where our current government regime is trying to kind of dehumanize these people and like, hey, the, they are the enemy and they are bad. And yet you can still see a movie and be like, this, these, these are people just like us that experience the same things like us. Why is, why is this the message that is being um, given to us? So it, that, that's an important thing to keep in mind. I think that was something I, I read about when I read about after watching Close Up was it was something that Kiarostami really, especially in the time, you know, Iran being such a country of in in often global news and a point of conflict in many cases, it was, uh, you know, Kiarostami getting recognized in his films and the things that he depicted where I think that, you know, people started to understand like, oh, people in Iran... They are like us, like you, like you said. They, they, you know, they're not, they're not all these brutal dictators or anything like that. You know, yeah, it, not all of them are wearing a military coat of arms. Yeah, and and, and it is. I mean, when you find, if you want to find out what's important to a culture, you know, you you watch their art, and when you're watching art from another culture, and kind of be like, oh, that that's us too. Okay, let's uh. Let's break down the, these preconceptions and these barriers that we have. So I, I I I lied a little bit, Ben. I do have one more question for you. Have you watched The Witch yet? No. <laughs> so I, I I a couple weeks ago I lent Benny uh, The Witch, the the Robert Eggers film on uh, Blu-ray because I am very excited about The Lighthouse. If you pay any attention to the ID Movies Badly yes. Facebook page, it's probably the movie I'm looking forward to the most uh, this coming uh, upcoming fall season, which may mean that I'll be horribly disappointed by it, but, um, in order to get Benny excited for it, I lent him The Witch, and, uh, as you've just witnessed, he's still, still not watched it. Well, I had the Coker trilogy that I was trying to get to. Well, how did that work out for you, Benny? Failed. (laughs) Failed on three counts of the trilogy. All right, so, well, and Halloween is coming up, so The Witch is, is gonna be perfect for it, so. All right, uh, but now we can, uh, we can kind of get into the actual specific recommendations of the titles and um as i said if you've been paying attention you know what we're going to talk about but benny there's still the order to talk about so what is the first film that you're recommending to me to watch so the way that i want to preface the order is uh you know originally it was maybe going to include the coker trilogy but i really i'm what i'm gonna recommend is kind of more akin to how i became what really the order that drew me into kiarostami and it really wasn't a deep dive at first. Mm-hmm. Like Someone in Love is the first film mm-hmm. that I want to recommend that you watch. It was, I think, I think I can't remember if I saw Like Someone in Love or Certified Copy first. They were really close. Uh, but Like Someone in Love is, people, It's it's been talked about as kind of maybe one of the more, uh, the least in-your-face Kiarostami. Okay. By all accounts, you could watch it and be like, oh, that was a really good film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nothing maybe so striking. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, again, not to make you think about image or anything like very deep. It's, a, it's an enjoyable film. Mm-hmm. It's done really well. And I think what really intrigued me about it, too, though, was the way the Criterion talks about it. Uh, just kind of being... You know that there was there was something kind of deep, um, deeper to, to discover in the film that mm-hmm. wasn't so obvious, and that intrigued me because I think you know we have these films that we hold up of great filmmakers, and yet sometimes really there's some really uh, deep wisdom, in, again 
looking at the body of their work and some of their less notable work, mm-hmm. but being able to see like, oh, that was an evolution of that, or that was a more resolution, or in general, this this contains all of the great things, and yet that he's worked on before or or really pushed for and um, that really underpin this film, but aren't as quite obvious. Okay, and. There's something beautiful about that, being able to kind of contain a lot of those things. Well, and, and yeah, this is, so, Like Someone in Love, this is the one that Benny's been talking about, was was filmed in Tokyo. Um, the IMDb uh, summary is, in Tokyo, a young sex worker develops an unexpected connection with a widower over a period of two days. Um, and this was actually, um, if I understand correctly, the last feature film he did before he died. This came out in 2012, I think he died in 2017, so... He did a few things after that, but this was the last actual feature film that he did. And it seems like what you're doing here is, like, dip your toe in the Kiristami waters first, which was the approach that, that um, Daniel Walber took with me and, and Pedro Amaldovar, where um, if he would have started me out with a matador, I would have been like, I don't, I don't know what the hell is going on here. <laughs> but we started out with uh, All About My Mother, which was like, okay, I, I get it. And then the matador was like, now here's fucking Pedro Amaldovar. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, it sounds like this is the approach that you're taking, which uh, I'm okay with. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, an entirely, uh, entirely Japanese cast, Japanese production. And as you said, this was like, censorship was kind of getting cracked down in Iran. Mm-hmm. So, um, I wonder, uh, I mean, this is obviously not something I could be able to speak about until probably the episode after I've watched it, but um, what would this movie look like if it had been filmed in Iran, I wonder? Or could it have been? It definitely could not have been, <laughs> because much of the censorship re- revolved around depictions of marriage and sexual relations and uh. this is about a sex worker i mean big strike that's three strikes right there <laughs> somehow you know um and um you know uh, yeah so it definitely could not have been filmed in iran and i don't know what else i have to say about that <laughs> I, it just uh it, yeah okay um I I don't know. I, I'm I'm trying I'm I'm trying to click through here to see if there's any if any of these um, Japanese stars are uh, people that you may uh, have recognized. Um, I don't. I certainly uh, don't recognize any of them. But um, I, I was I was thrown off a little bit because uh, one of the leads is um, oh, his last name is Watanabe. So I was like, oh, Ken Watanabe. But I don't know if there's. Well, he's actually he's he. So the the star uh, I think his I think it's Watanabe. He's actually um, a very seasoned veteran in the film industry, mm-hmm. but always had been an extra. <laughs> oh, and very very little speaking parts. But again, really, there's something. I watched some of the extra features of of this film, and there's something very. I think it has to do with being in Japan and being in another culture. Again, making sure to collaborate with other artists that. Are familiar with Japanese culture. Uh, there, there's something very hands off that I realized about his, at least in this film, that seemed, um, you know, he really gave license to a lot of people's and especially his actors to live, be. Um, you know, I think the writing itself came sort of out of rehearsals. Um, and, you know, there's, there's also this just a translation barrier mm-hmm. in which I think he was wise enough or, you know, just kind of knew, you know, being someone from Iran and, and, and being in a, a film world that's largely English, um, you know, he understood the difficulties of translation and being an extra barrier. And so I think made a wise decision to really kind of give more license to the, 
to the collaborators, mm-hmm. in, including the star. And, you know, one of the ways that um, it shows him rehearsing with the actors, he really just had them, he had a wonderful set dresser. That was one of the highlights mm-hmm. that he talked about in the film extras is that he had just a set dresser. There's this particular apartment that features greatly. It's the it's the man's apartment. Okay. And um, he said to the level of detail that he went to, that there were things in drawers that weren't really ever seen. There were so many things that were never seen. And the main characters, he's, he's an old, uh, he's a professor, retired professor, and he translates a lot of things. And this, this set dresser went to the extent of putting, writing out translations of things and putting it on the desk and <laughs> All, all these sorts of trinkets on this bookshelf and to the to the extent that you know Carol Stomach was able to bring the actor in and just tell them to walk around there's a scene where the the, the main guy is on the phone for a lot of the, and, and the sex worker comes in and she's just wandering around waiting for him to finish his call mm-hmm. and he's kind of nervously trying to wrap up the call but it's sort of an important call and it's this great moment where she's She's just kind of biding her time and kind of observing, and mm-hmm. he's like, uh, 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 I really can't talk right now. I really can't talk, you know. Um, but I think there's there's something about uh, the way that he was able to kind of be hands off of it um, that um, that really really lended to the whole feel of the film. Well, and, and that that reminds me a little bit of of uh, what I talked about with Tyler Smith in the last month about Mike Lee and how. Um, it's, it's, there's a difference between being, having an objective camera and, a, and an observant camera with the observant one, just kind of being much more like, I'm going to, let's just see kind of where this goes and let the actors do their thing. And it's, it's funny cause little details about that, like, Oh, there's all these things that you don't see where there's translations everywhere. And like the, as a, a viewer, you might be like, well, that seems a bit excessive, but if that helped the actor get into the character and the environment, then who knows how much that influenced, like, the performance you're seeing and the emotion that's coming out of it. Because, like, I'm even just thinking, like, what if we were filming a, a, a scene here in, in Benny's room and I had permission, like, yeah, go through the drawers. Like, you know, don't you know, don't pretend like you're going, like, actually go through the drawers and that kind of thing. And how much would that be like, oh, this is an interesting book and that kind of thing. And that's, um, it's, a, it's, an, it's a very interesting approach. Um, but that's just what I, that's just what I thought of right there. I think it takes... A really seasoned director, you know, I think you could look at the special features and someone just not versed with... And just if you had no idea that he was a seasoned veteran filmmaker, you might say, he's not really doing much directing, is he? (laughs) But I think it's really uh, sort of very intuitive at at his point in his career. he, He knew exactly what he was doing and he knew how to create the circumstances to get what would be... What to to have the even the elements in the right place because you know a film they often talk about it being sort of three diff, three versions of a film you know there's there's the script <laughs> there's the shoot what you have the, the but then there's also the edit yeah mm-hmm. the editor kind of being the third filmmaker of sorts you know yep. the director and the writer and um, you know I think he had a real uh, strong sense of creating the conditions necessary to get really good material um, that you can't necessarily always plan for. Um, you know, there are some filmmakers that are so precise, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, that, uh, you know, Fincher, for example, taking a hundred takes of certain things. Yep, and, yep. 
you know, there are those types of filmmakers. There are also types of filmmakers who know kind of how to, you know, just, again, create the circumstances where something magical might happen and get it that you would have never been able to, able to kind of produce mm. on your own meticulously. Yeah, and and then tying it back to our opening discussion, you have filmmakers like George Lucas who do two takes because after the first one, the only instruction is faster and more intense, and then you just have to <laughs> trust the actors. But but I, I do, and, and it, it is a sign of a veteran filmmaker when it's kind of like, I'm going to trust the actors to do the thing. I was having a conversation with some people last night where um, listening to an interview with David Mamet, um, and uh, asking him about like, well, how do you how do you direct your actors? And his instructors like read the fucking lines. Like that's what I tell them to do. Like, <laughs> you know that, it, that it's right there. Do your do what you do. <laughs> which is something that I find very interesting. But okay, so we got um, uh, like someone in love from 2012 is Benny's first recommendation, which means Benny's next recommendation is going to be certified certified copy, copy which. Um, here's me making a, a fool of myself. Um, when I first heard Benny mention certified copy, um, once again, I would like to preface before I go on, this is me being incredibly idiotic. I was like, is that the documentary about Anna Wintour? <laughs> it's not. No. Nope. It's, it's, it's the exact opposite. Um, this has nothing to do with Anna Wintour. No. It's not even a documentary. It is a fiction film yeah. from, uh, 2010. Yeah. So, um, and this one is the one from Italy. Um, IMDb, once again, coming to the rescue with a summary. In Tuscany, to promote his latest book, a middle-aged British writer meets a French woman who leads him to the village of... Lusig- Lus- I don't know how to pronounce that. Lusignano? Sorry. While there, a chance question reveals something deeper. Um, starring uh, Juliette Binoche, as aforementioned uh, French woman. So, certified copy, Benny. What do you got for this one? Well, this is the one that really caught my eye, I think, when I was perusing on Criterion. And, again, duplicity of images. And the the Criterion description kind of goes a little bit further and is a little bit more knowing of beyond, like, the plot of a film. Um, It says, What seems at first to be a straightforward tale of two people uh, getting to know each other over the course of the afternoon gradually reveals itself as something richer, stranger, and trickier. A mind-bending reflection on authenticity in art as well as in relationships. Hmm. Um, both cerebrally and emotionally engaging, certified copy reminds us that love itself is an enigma. Which I would consider really love to be a sauce. <laughs> the not, you know, it's maybe like what might get someone to watch it, and it's certainly in foreground. But the subtext itself is kind of this conversation, you know, it's sort of this art, but again, it really gets at what film and images are, and paintings, and a lot of art are, in a certain sense, images. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's sculpture, and painting is sort of this mixture, in my mind, of sculpture and photographs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a very material thing, but I digress. Um... I think, so certified copy, it seemed really mysterious. And when I watched it, I really did have, for a sense, I was like, okay, I'm following that this scene means this, and that something mysterious is going to happen. But each turn sort of turned in an unexpected way, not in terms of like what happens with plot, Mm -hmm. but it starts to really get at this sense of, has what I've been watching been faithful? To what I've been watching before. Okay. And 
you think that if you know watching a lot of film you, you sort of get a sense of like oh i saw that coming <laughs> yeah or whatever but it even gets underneath that it's not even a sense of like i wouldn't have ever expected that it's it makes you question the almost the filmmaker and like you really misled me like <laughs> um and not just in a plot way um and it, it really takes a turn at the end i think uh, for me the last the last couple of shots really kind of broadened it out into this larger discussion of the camera being present mm-hmm. in a film uh, we don't think about the camera because it's the one thing that we never see. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, sometimes you accidentally see it in a reflection, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But again, the duplicitous, uh, you know, it, the one of the main characters has a book about art, and that's his sort of character. The um, Juliet Binoche's character, um, you know, she is the the opening scene is his his book his book kind of presentation to a group of people and she's obviously some sort of fan mm-hmm. and is familiar with with the author of the book uh, being about the art world and again I, I really love you, you you really kind of have to listen almost more closely to Kiarostami's films because what is being said is almost foreground more than the images in some way hmm. um, you ca- I think a lot of times when you watch a film you're really taken by what's being shown to you yeah mm-hmm. and the dialogue and the sound is really just helping you immerse yourself more or reinforcing what you're seeing yeah um, or or you know <laughs> giving you the suspense of like what you will see later whereas you could almost just listen to a Kiarostami film. But of course, he's, I think his image making is, is superb and he really chooses well. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny because the, the way that you're talking about it almost kind of seems like um, pay attention to the entire film as though you're watching a good voiceover segment in the sense of like it shouldn't be that like the voiceover is explaining what you're seeing but the voiceover should be adding something that we're not immediately aware of or it should be adding something to it basically like i always go back to goodfellas because i love that film but um as voiceover done right but um mm-hmm. i guess it kind of makes sense when like the when the the dialogue is is voiceover for the entire film basically and so i, I have to say i'm excited and also nervous uh because sometimes i'm not paying full attention. If I miss something, then um, I could yeah. misinterpret an entire film, Benny. Well, what's helpful is you'll probably, <laughs> I assume, watch both certified copy and like someone in love with subtitles. I, I, I would, yeah, that's considering that's, it's in Japanese and Italian. Yeah, in, in non-English languages. Well, I guess a little bit of certified copy is in English, mm-hmm. um, but it is helpful. I find, uh, as much as I hate seeing the subtitles, sometimes I really. I, I don't like missing those small moments either. Mm-hmm. But I think really, again, it is the dialogue that is kind of pointing you towards... I mean, each each phrase is loaded. I think it's constantly pointing outside of the film and outside of filmmaking itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, some, I really love... 
when a film is able to kind of nod to the making, how, what it goes into making a film, or mm-hmm. the fact that it is a film that's been made by people. Um, but it really starts to get at uh, deeper things. Um, it's really a, a thinking movie. Now, how does how does it, how does one a filmmaker do that without being necessarily meta or too on the surface? I mean, this is a weird equivalency to make, but I just my fiance and I uh, kind of binged the entire season of Carnival Row, that Amazon show with Orlando Bloom and and uh, Cara Delevingne, Clara Delevingne. But anyway, um, and it's a thinly veiled metaphor for the current state of like immigration in basically in the entire world. But I mean. You substitute fae, or the fae folk, fairy folk, with, like, um, Hispanics, uh, or African Americans. And, like, it's so, it is so blatantly obvious that, like, it can't be meta because it's so, like, do you get it? Do you get what we're saying here? (laughs) So, like, how does one kind of reference outside of the film without being overly cheeky or, or meta or that kind of thing? Well, I just I finished my last statement with saying that it's a thinking film, but I immediately realized to myself it's very much a feeling film, mm-hmm. and I think that's what again I think the way Kiarostami is able to so new you know so deftly kind of make you think outside a film and yet really remain in a film um, is that the, the the story of these two characters and their whatever their relationship is and the unfolding of what we know about it mm-hmm. what we think about it it, it it does get you very get caught up I mean it's it's very authentic it's very real and the the mo- you, you feel their emotions you feel their anger mm-hmm. you feel their frustration you feel their affection you it's 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 um, it's contagious because it, it's 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 written so well it's performed so well I mean Juliette Panache just an amazing you know, mm-hmm. actress. Um, you know, it's uh, a quick side note about certified copy. I watched also Code Unknown around mm-hmm. the same time mm-hmm. for the first time that I watched this, mm-hmm. and she features in both of the films. Yep. And I would say that they really share in some of the themes of again. That was a film you haven't seen it, correct? No, I have not. That was the film that I said it for me. Uh, Michael Haneke he breaks the film wall. Mm-hmm. He breaks the fourth wall. Without breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, which I, I still couldn't wrap my head around. <laughs> and you won't until you see it. <laughs> That's the point. Mm. And I think Kiarostami kind of edges that line too. It's not necessarily like, well, actually, in certified copy, I think I, I would say the same thing about this film is that I think he breaks the fourth wall without breaking the fourth wall. Oh boy. You'll have to look for it. Yeah, all right. Um, I'll, I'll pay attention. Yeah. I promise. But I think that that's really how, what enables him to kind of have these conversations about film and images and yet create something beautiful and compelling and entertaining too, mm-hmm. um, is that it is grounded in these, in the, the humanism of it, mm-hmm. um, and the, um, and just a good, a good story actually. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have maybe per se the trappings like certified copy in terms of action. It's pretty lacking, mm. but dramatically, it's 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 uh, it's great. Mm. Lots of good t- twists and turns, and um, 
again, it's it's a gr- great observation of life. He's a great observer of real life, much like Ozu. He's able to recreate real, real scenes in mm-hmm. front of you on right. screen. Um, is rare. I, I do have kind of a vague memory of when this came out and it, it appearing on a bunch of people's best of lists at the, at the very end of the year. Um, it was a big winner at the Cannes Film Festival. Abbas Kiarostami got, um, or Abbas Kiarostami got a winner of the Award of the Youth, whatever that means. Uh, Julia Pinoche got a Best Actress. It lost um, the Palme d'Or, but Benny, do you want to guess what film it lost? Do you want me to give you options or do you want to try and guess? No, just tell me. Okay, um... You know, I'm going to give you options instead. Right, I want to. I want to see if you get. So let me look at some of the films that were up here. Okay, so is it A, uh, Alejandro uh, Gonzalez in the Attitudes, uh, beautiful? Was it Mike Lee's Another Year? Was it I can't pronounce his name, uh, Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, or was it, where is it here, um, Ken Loach's Root Irish. Uh, woefully ignorant on the cataloging of the trivia of of film awards. That's all right. But I want to say maybe beautiful. It was not beautiful. Yeah. It was Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. <laughs> Never even heard of it. Uh, which I was on. Uh, which is on my list of like I have to see this for a long time, a long time, huh. and I just never got around to see it. If you wanna, if you wanna hear the the the, um, it's a it's a Thai film. Okay. Um, dying of kidney disease, a man spends his last somber days with family, including the ghost of his wife and a forest spirit who used to be his son, on a rural Norland, northern Thailand farm. Hmm. Um, let's see if I know of anything else that the director has done. Um, I don't. So um, instead, we're going to move on to the last um, recommendation that Benny has for me, which is Benny. Close up. Oh, I didn't even get a chance to do the drum roll. But yes, uh, <laughs> but uh, this is um, close up from the year, where are you? 1990, um, which is, to be clear, not the sequel to Blow Up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, yeah, I, I thought of Blow Up when I, when I watched it. There's, there's something, uh, something in the names. I don't think you can draw many topical mm-hmm. parallels between them, but again, I think Blow Up... Is, it's a really great film about images. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, when I say the word images, I refer to moving images as well. Mm-hmm. It's um, I had a professor in college. He was actually not a professor of any sort of media. Okay. He was a humanities professor and, and trained in history, mm-hmm. actually. and But he was also a, a fine art photographer. And it really stuck with me the way he referred to not photographs, but images. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, I've really, I really um, taken to that term. I think it's very a good descriptor of 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 what all entails. Mm-hmm. And now you talk. We've talked about duplicity of images. Yeah. We've talked about breaking the fourth wall without breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. This is not a, a a documentary film, and yet in the credits, there's a lot of people who are just credited as himself or herself. And, all of them, and yet, and yet, it is a is a fiction film allegedly. Is this going to blur the lines for me, Benny? Is this going to be one of these? Is this is this exit through the gift shop in nineteen ninety? <laughs> um, if it is, it's 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 more upfront about it. Okay, it's it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't try and deceive you from the beginning. Mm-hmm. At least 
in the sense of, you know, it's very clearly like there's there's an opening scene. There are many. One thing, one note on these these films. Mm-hmm. There are many great car scenes. Oh. And this is something that um, I also read an article uh, that talked about his Kiarostami's use of car scenes and it really being a great vehicle for conversations. There we go. <laughs> um, but this is something that I've kind of started to pick out about films that and really cherish are these great um, like car scenes. There are so many car scenes in films mm-hmm. where you have characters talking or car chasings. The, something about the car is so wrapped up in film... Um, culture Mm -hmm. and um you know there are many 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 things about filming in a car and filming of cars um i've started to kind of pick out that there are some like very very uh emblematic um emblematic settings or devices of film and the car being one of those not something to avoid but something to uh you know, he doesn't go out of his way necessarily to create, like... It's not like he's creating these mind-blowing car shots. He just <laughs> uses the car really well to help tell his story. And it, and the car proves to be a great cinematic device. Side note, mm-hmm. just watch for the car scenes. <laughs> Particularly, there's one car scene in Like Someone in Love, mm-hmm. where I just about lost my mind it's very <laughs> it's a very slow film mm-hmm. uh towards the end there's a little bit more drama and it builds to that um at least visible and a little bit more tension mm-hmm. uh but there's this one scene and it really it's the old man driving and they're driving underneath these overpasses and really you can see the you can see the sky reflected the be- a beautiful blue sky with clouds reflected on the windshield okay. it's kind of a, a more elevated car position okay and you can see both uh, the two main characters the the woman and the, and the old man in the front seats and he's driving around and, and as he turns the car it's a long shot and, or a long take, per se. Um, and uh, it was just so beautiful, like this image of these reflections and just kind of the way that it, you know, seeing the sky and seeing their it, them obscured by the sky and really mix, their, mm-hmm. the image of their faces mix with the image of the sky. was such a... Uh, <laughs> it was a transcendent shot for me. I was just like, that one shot. If if I took away anything from that film, I'm so glad I saw that one shot. It's 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 really no, there's nothing much to read into it, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. But it really just caught me. Um, so car shots, car scenes. <laughs> um, close up. There's some there's some good car scenes, and it opens with a car scene. Okay, and and this I mean if if anyone is is following along with the podcast in the sense of watching the films when I do. I, I don't know if that's actually the case, but um, and you're wondering, like, why are they talking about what kind of, if this is fiction or not. It, it is, the, the summary is the true story of, and I apologize if I get the names of the people wrong, the true story of Hassan Sabzian that impersonated the director Mosan uh, Makmalbaf to convince a the family they would star in his so-called new film. 
Um, so I don't. I even with that summary, I have no idea what to expect from this thing other than duplicity. I, I suppose is, is what we've been talking about here. So the, the, the opening scene is great. It's it's very simple. You see these uh, a man walk into a car and with some like military police type men. They get into this car and this is the opening scene and. Essentially, you, you come to find out that this guy is a reporter, mm-hmm. and that he's kind of stumbled on this story of someone being caught in the act of impersonating this famous film director. Mm-hmm. And they're on their way to go confront this person. <laughs> he's like, this is going to be my story, you know, like they're <laughs> great journalists, and you know, mm-hmm. and really great dialogue with the cabbie, which mm-hmm. I wonder if he was an actually the cabbie in the, I don't know he most of, I, everyone that I saw in the credits played themselves okay because <laughs> IMDB does have some people as like you know a name and then uh, taxi the guy who, who plays taxi driver is credited as taxi driver so maybe he's real maybe he's an actor that just played who knows but yeah um, but it's a great scene and it kind of sets up the, the story mm-hmm. and it's it's a like it's a film sequence it's not any sort of blurring with with fact or fiction right um but so you arrive to the house and that's where things start to not uh happen as expectedly as you would think Mm -hmm. and that's really when okay you say it's based on a true story you're like okay and then eventually in the film there is there's footage of a sort of trial Mm -hmm. and Forewarning, um, as you go progressively through these films, I would say just for an, an average film goer, I know as someone who really likes watching films, but even we just talked about Tarkovsky and how those are difficult to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, if you're not bought into it, and even then, I remember the first time I saw Solaris, I took a nap in the middle. I, <laughs> I paused the film. Yep. I took a nap right where I was laying, mm-hmm. woke up, finished the film, which actually ended up lend, like adding to my film experience because there's something very dreamlike about that film. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but with, with this progressively, with Like Someone in Love, it's not going to be a difficult thing to get through. Um, the, the first scene is, is maybe the longest seeming scene mm-hmm. at first. Um, certified copy starts to get a little bit more difficult because you are sort of really having to confront your expectations as you're watching it, which can start to take you out of the film earlier than maybe you were expecting. Mm-hmm. Close up, you really get to this point uh, when they're in the trial, and it is a very prolonged scene. Mm-hmm. And my friend who was watching it with me, he, he definitely fell asleep. <laughs> And, but it was, and I was, honestly, I was, I was, it was a little bit late at night and I was getting a little bit like, okay. So that footage is definitely, I think, nonfiction, or at least that's what I'm understanding. But then all all of a sudden something started clicking. And again, I started listening closer to what was being said. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the key to what started. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is what's... What? And it really started... Oh, And I was like... I was gripped. 
Mm-hmm. I was gripped till the end of the film. I'm like, what's going to happen next? Okay. And it's, you know, it, it is sort of the specter of like this real life like trial, which they actually filmed mm-hmm. at the trial. Oh. Now, after you read the film, because you have the, I'm going to lend you my Criterion edition of this. Woo. Definitely read the essay afterwards because there's some okay. anecdotal things about the 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 filmmaker that the the guy was trying to impersonate okay. and Kiarostami and uh-huh. their relationship. Okay. And the the filmmaker actually he is in the film mm-hmm. at some point, and it's interesting to learn the context of the relationship between those two filmmakers mm-hmm. after the fact. Yeah. And in specifically in a sentiment that that filmmaker said commented about his feeling of how he got involved with the film early on the film's origins essentially because this this event happened in real life and all of a sudden Kiarostami's like I'm gonna get on this okay almost like the reporter in the beginning right you know um, so anyway this this film definitely comprises of there are many times in which. So the in the in the courtroom it's sixteen millimeter, versus the rest oh. of the scene. So it feels like more yeah, yeah. real nonfiction footage. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the rest of the film is thirty five, which is much more what we come to expect from beautiful films in a theater. Yeah, yeah. And uh, even some of the f- so it seems like maybe that's the the delineator of like real f- footage uh-huh. and 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 non or um, narrative footage yeah, yeah, yeah or recreations or whatever it is mm-hmm. but even that starts to the lines start to be blurred you're like oh wait a minute um because oftentimes Kiarostami himself features in the some of it takes the form of like an interview mm-hmm. again sort of like you would expect in a documentary yeah but when you start to think about the logistics of like wait when did he film this um and then the footage that he shows there's some he's it's kind of a maze of trying to piece together again at the end of the film like what was non-fiction truly Mm -hmm. and what was fiction truly even the stuff that you start to see as non-fiction becomes a little tainted Mm -hmm. by what Kiarostami does Um, and just to the larger context of what the film was the film is it's a it's a notable film for itself of what the watching experience, but it's also notable for the the, the context surrounding the film as it was made, like mm-hmm. how the film was made, and and even the even there's a whole documentary that I'm eager to dig into about the main the central figure, um, Hossein Sabzian, um, and it was it was it was uh, filmed six years after the film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a lot to dig in to <laughs> yeah. after you watch the film actually, okay. and to understand the context and and close up really is it's a great one to end on because it was the film that is considered to really help uh, gain that gained Kiarostami international um, notice and fame and um, really led into the rest of his work being recognized and the Iranian film um, industry as well. Mm-hmm. Well. And it sounds like a, a good one to end on because it's like, okay, I've I've wet my whistle, I've kind of like worked my way up to this thing which is going to be like full-blown Kiarostami. 
Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I will definitely post the, uh, the the article. I like doing that anyway. Like if I, if there is ever a, a movie that I cover which is on Criterion, I like to post the mm-hmm. essays because it's sometimes it's like oh I, I never considered that. Or sometimes it's something I reference as like when I did like with uh, with Naked, it was like I disagree with this person, and here's what this person said that I disagree with. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I appreciate the the heads up about Tarkovsky. Uh, to be clear, Benny and I were talking about Tarkovsky when we were coming over here, uh, and uh, one thing that should abate my hesitancy a little bit is Solaris is um, an hour longer than even the longest Kiristami film that we're watching here. Um, True. So, so that uh, um, the, the long, I think I think it's um, uh, certified copy or clocks in at like 147. Uh, two hours and 47 minutes is Solaris. So, yeah, I took uh, a nap in the middle. It's I, I did too. I didn't intend to. That, that, that's what, that's I knew what, I was about to take a nap yeah. and so I was like okay hold on a second. It's 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 better yeah it's better to do that so yeah. but um, okay so as a, as a recap of all three that we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about um, like someone in love then we're going to be talking about certified copy and then we're going to be talking about close up and by we I mean uh, those are the reviews I will be doing um, subsequently coming up so um, Benny before we depart here if people find you interesting and they're like I want to get to know Benny more or I want to see some of Benny's work how can people find you online if they can find you at all some, maybe you're just you're not on you, you want to be off the grid it's entirely up to you I am um, hmm. I have to make a little decision I, I have a portfolio website and well I guess I can't really make that decision but uh, my portfolio website is bennycrown.com and it's a lot of my uh uh, you know, work, work, a portfolio that I would show clients. And that's Benny Crown, Crown with a K. With a K. If you, if you do Benny Crown with a C.com, I can't guarantee where you're going to end up. Nope. It might be somewhere that plays really weird. Um, I, <laughs> I, um, I'm not very present on social media, including Instagram, even though I'm an avid photographer still. Um, but I do have a secret website. Okay. And I think it needs to remain a secret, but there are definitely, there's definitely a way to discover it without me. Well, you know, well, let's think about that. Yeah. I, I can certainly link to BennyCrown.com, and, and, if, and if Benny changes his mind, we can certainly do other things. I will just say, if you do BennyCrown.com with a C, it's not, it doesn't exist. This site, this site can't be reached. The it doesn't even so exist. It's, it's not even real. So don't even, don't even go there because you're not going to be able to see anything. Um, what if it's that? That is the secret website. But, <laughs> but, but go to Benny Crown with a K, and that is, I mean, Benny K R O W N, not yes. Benny Crown with a K dot com. Right, that's silly. That's it's not going to get you anywhere. And that's either, not the secret that's, website that's either. Not the secret website, but. Um, no, no, nothing that I do is secret because I'm uh, shameless and I want to be the center of attention, I guess. Of course, you can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at BattleshipRetention.com if you go to the podcast drop-down menu and find I Do Movies Badly. That's also where you can chime in on the comments field, which most people don't do, but you're encouraged to. Um, or go to IDoMoviesBadly.Podbee.com. Email me at YouDoMoviesBadly at gmail.com. N- nobody does it. I think the last email I got was October of last year. So, um, you know, shoot me an email. That's Just, not nobody. Well, <laughs> but I, I forget sometimes that I have that email address because it's been so long since I've gotten an email on it. Um, Nolan Fixes Teeth uh, on Twitter, and uh, that's that's it. That's basically it. So, um, yeah, this, this is uh, Benny. Thank you for, for joining me to talk about uh, Abbas Kiristami. 
Um, and be sure, listeners, to tune in next week where I'll be reviewing Like Someone in Love and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 